On a spring Sunday, nearly 300 years ago, a young Welshman named Howell Harris walked away from a church service feeling like a new man. As he walked out of church, he said to those who were around him, my sins have been forgiven. Those who were around him and heard him are said to have looked at him with stunned amazement, not understanding his meaning, and they knew nothing of his experience of conviction of sin, knew nothing of the weight of sin that he had been carrying. And he went on to another group of people and said to them, my sins have been forgiven. One of the, uh, some of the biographers of Howell Harris said of this event that this was as much to him as if he had seen heaven. He had never heard anyone else say anything similar before. But the joy of his heart was such that he could not restrain himself, and he longed for his neighbors to rejoice with him at his release. He had felt the burden and the weight of sin, and he had come to know through trusting in Christ the release from that sin that his sins were forgiven. And though those with whom he spoke that day may not have understood his joy or the significance of what he said, nevertheless, we all should understand that the forgiveness of sins really is the most important thing that could ever happen to any one of us. Because apart from the forgiveness of sins, we stand under the the judgment of God for what we have done. But through Jesus, sins are forgiven. And it is of this great reality, the forgiveness of sins, that we find the Apostle Paul speaking in our text for this evening, which is Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And if you're using the Red Pew Bibles, this is on page 984 in the, uh, the Red Pew Bibles. And so uh, we're going to be looking specifically at uh, verses 13 through 15, but just to uh, set those verses in context, I'll begin reading up in chapter 2, verse 8, and read down through verse 15. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, as we've seen in the last several sermons here in Colossians chapter 2, as we've been working through this passage, we've seen how Paul is, is illustrating the, the greatness of Christ and the glory of the gospel. He is, is demonstrating to these Colossian Christians back in the first century that they must not move away from Christ or that they must not receive anything in addition to Jesus Christ. 
They have all that they need for salvation and for their own personal wholeness in Christ alone, in his gospel alone. There's no need, therefore, to seek for anything else. And not only is there no need to seek for anything else, to seek for anything else is both futile and destructive. And so here in the the closing verses of this section that we're looking at tonight, verses 13 through 15, Paul describes the manner of our salvation in Jesus Christ for those who believe. And so he says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And that is the situation, that before someone comes to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, they are dead. There is no spiritual life naturally within us. The spiritual life that was in Adam and Eve at their creation died when they sinned, when they ate from the forbidden fruit in the garden. God had said to them that on the day they ate of the fruit, they would surely die. Now, as we know from the the book of Genesis, they lived on physically after they ate from the forbidden fruit. But they did die that day in that they died spiritually. And that spiritual death then has been passed on to all of us who have been descended from them, except our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come into this world as people who are physically alive but spiritually dead dead in trespasses and sins, and therefore under the judgment of God. And thus we find the Apostle Paul writing in Romans 5.18 that through one transgression, that is, the transgression of Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men. And therefore it is no wonder that our Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We come into the world spiritually dead, and unless we gain spiritual life, we won't see the kingdom of God. We'll be shut out from the kingdom. And so Paul describes our natural condition there in verse 13 by saying that we were dead in transgressions and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. And I think he's getting at two things here. One, we're dead in transgressions, the sins that we have actually committed. And as we know from from 1 John, sin is the transgression of the law, the transgression of God's law. Sin is lawlessness, either disobeying God by, by omission, leaving undone the things that God has commanded that we do, or disobeying God by commission, doing those things that God has forbidden us to do. The law of God says, do not lie, do not commit adultery, you shall not covet, you shall have no other gods before me. If we do those things, we have sinned by commission. And On the other hand, the law of God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we do not do those things, we have sinned by omission, by omitting the things that we ought to have done. And sin then separates us from God, as we find in Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And therefore Paul can speak of the Gentiles in Ephesians 4.18 as being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts, to be cut off 
from the life of God is to be dead in transgressions. It is to be dead in sins. But Paul here also speaks of of them before their salvation and therefore of us also as having been dead in the uncircumcision of the flesh. And by those words, he seems to refer to the, the flesh inasmuch as the flesh in Scripture speaks to our fallen sinful nature, the original sin which we have within us because we all sinned in Adam. We derive our human nature from a sinful forefather and we have sin then imputed to us and counted against us. We have sin inherent within us. In our fallen state, sin clings to our human nature. I think uh, the formula of Concord expressed this quite well when it said that original sin is an inexpressible impairment and such a corruption of human nature that nothing pure nor good has remained in itself and in all its internal and external powers, but that it is altogether corrupted, so that through original sin, man in God's sight is spiritually lifeless and with all his powers dead indeed to that which is good. Because we have inherited a sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are dead indeed, dead indeed to that which is good. And so given Paul's words here, we're not only dead in our sins, those things that we have done, we're also dead in this uncircumcision of the flesh, our wicked hearts, which we have received from our parents. And so prior to salvation, we were dead and therefore helpless in that condition. It's been said that there's a, there's a great difference between being mostly dead and all the way dead. And when we're all the way dead, we are completely helpless. There is nothing that we can do. But there is great news. If you, if you look to the words there in our Bibles, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. God the Father has made all who trust in Jesus Christ alive with Christ. And so think of this, just as God the Father raised Jesus from the dead on the third day after he was crucified, so too has God raised up all believers in Jesus to new life. And we find this in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have gone, behold, new things have come. God has made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And notice, notice the scope of this here, that he has forgiven us, what? One or two transgressions? Some transgressions? Mm-mm. He's forgiven us all of our transgressions. All of them are forgiven. And this is... This is the, the way that Scripture speaks across the board about the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins which God grants to his believing people is all-encompassing. It's not just part of our sins that are forgiven. It is all sins that are forgiven to believers. And so just consider a handful of Scriptures here. Psalm 103, verse 3 speaks of the Lord as the one who pardons all your iniquities. Jeremiah 33, 8. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. 
Micah 7.19, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the seas. 1 John 1.9, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When the Lord forgives a sinner, he forgives the entire debt. And of course, the great result of this is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no judgment remaining. There was judgment upon us prior to trusting in Jesus, but when a sinner trusts in Jesus, the complete and entire debt is taken away from us. And not only is the forgiveness complete, this comes to us sheerly by the grace of God. And so if you, if you think back to, to Luke chapter 7, when Jesus was at a man named Simon's house, he told Simon a parable about two debtors who could not pay their debt. And as Jesus was telling this parable, he was talking about the man forgiving the debt, and he described him this way. He graciously forgave them both. He graciously forgave them both. The forgiveness came simply by grace. He graciously forgave. And so so it is with us as well, that when the Lord forgives, he graciously forgives. There's nothing that we contribute, nothing that we bring to the table as a bargaining chip, so to speak. As Augustus Toplady put it, in my hand no price I bring, simply to his cross I cling. This is what God the Father has done for us in Christ. He made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. The sin which separated us from God and brought us death is done away with, and we are therefore united with God by faith, such that we now receive the life of God within us by faith. And Paul continues to expound upon this there in verse 14 when he says that God has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Now I think that what Paul is getting at there when he is speaking of this uh, this certificate of debt consisting of decrees is that he's he's speaking of the the Old Testament law in its entirety because the the Old Testament law with its decrees was marshaled against us, as it were, inasmuch as we were sinners and had sinned against God, though the law itself is holy, righteous, and good, yet inasmuch as we have transgressed that law, we are, in the words of James 2.10, guilty of all. It stands against us and is hostile to us. We have violated the law and not lived up to its standard, and therefore prior to trusting in Jesus, the law condemns each one of us. But now, for those who trust in Jesus Christ, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us has been taken out of the way, having been nailed to the cross. Certainly, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, the sacrifices and so forth, those are taken away in the sense that they are completely abolished because their purpose has been fulfilled. They were pointing ahead to Jesus and his sacrifice for us, the atonement for sins and our reconciliation to God on account of Christ's sacrifice. They were shadows of Christ. There's now no more need for the shadows now that Christ has come and has accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation. 
And as to the moral law embedded in the, the Old Testament law, that abides. Those commands to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, to love our neighbor as ourself, the, the moral law of the Ten Commandments, those things continue and abide. They are holy, just, and good. They are a reflection of God's holy character, and therefore the prescriptions and prohibitions of that law tell us how it is that we now are to be holy, just as, as God is holy. And so the moral law doesn't go away as a rule of life for believers, but what is taken away and nailed to the cross is the condemnation which we had incurred from the moral law. Because prior to our trusting in Jesus, the Ten Commandments are not only the requirements of God for us, but the Ten Commandments are also a compilation of the decrees that are hostile to us as unbelievers. They're hostile to those who are outside of Jesus Christ, because those outside of Christ have not kept the law and are therefore under judgment because of the law, because they haven't received the forgiveness of sins outside of Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is that for all who come to Jesus in repentance and faith, the hostility of those decrees is taken away through the forgiveness of our sins. I think John Gill expressed this well when he said, Every nail in the cross made a cut in this handwriting that lay against us, whereby it was so torn as to be of no force. Thus, the Holy Ghost makes use of various expressions to show that there is nothing in the law standing against the saints. It is blotted out and cannot be read. It is took away and cannot be seen. It is nailed to the cross of Christ and is torn to pieces thereby. Nothing can ever be produced from it to the hurt and condemnation of the people of God. Now, this is, this is good news, truly good news, because there was a whole list of things against us outside of Jesus. But when we trust in Christ, that list is taken to the cross, nailed to the cross, and is not against us anymore. Praise God. And then finally, in verse 15, Paul directs our attention to the liberation that we have in Jesus. He says... When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, this is a little bit confusing because we've got some different pronouns going on here. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, I think uh, the way that we should understand this is that the first two he's are to be thought of in reference to God the Father. In other words, when God the Father had disarmed the rulers and authorities, God the Father made a public display of them, made a public display of those rulers and authorities, having triumphed over them through him, that is, through his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, God the Father triumphs over Satan and all of his evil forces through Christ's death. He makes a a public spectacle, a public display of them through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, this idea of making a public display of of defeated enemies probably comes from the old parades in Rome back in the days of the Roman Empire when they would chain or tie up their enemies who had been conquered and would would march them through the city as uh, maybe the emperor or or a conquering general uh, was was part of this parade and I guess the people of Rome would be there and everybody would see, this is the conqueror, these guys are the ones who have been conquered. And even, even my grandfather told me that 
as a boy back in the 1940s. He remembered uh, how they took German POWs off of a train in a little Midwestern town in Indiana and marched those POWs around the town. Those were men who had been captured, taken prisoner, and were, in a sense, being put on public display out there in town. I don't know if they just felt that the POWs needed some exercise or if they were trying to, to make a point both to the citizens of the United States and to these German soldiers that, hey, you guys are defeated, you guys are, uh, are not in charge here. And that's, in a way, what the cross was. It was Satan's means of defeat. It was the way in which God defeated Satan, and it's also a public display of his defeat. And one writer made, made an illustration that I think was, was so helpful. And he, he drew this illustration from, uh, from the gladiator games when, when gladiators would, would used to fight. And he would say that it was the height of disgrace for a gladiator to be killed at the moment when he thought he had triumphed. Like he had, you know, maybe, maybe run one guy through and then the guy who was about to die gave him a death blow right at the last minute. And that, if you think about it, is what happened on the cross. Jesus Christ, our Lord, was nailed to the cross and dying, but yet he triumphed over Satan through his death. He dealt the death blow to Satan as he was dying there on the cross. This is Jesus triumphing over Satan. And certainly this is, this is what we find in, in the New Testament. We, we touched on this a little bit this morning in, uh, in Sunday school as we were thinking uh, about David being victorious over his enemies as a, as a foreshadowing of Christ being victorious over his. And so if you think to, to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 12, 28 and 29, we see Jesus there and he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. And what Jesus is is getting at there is that with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in him, he's binding the strong man. He's binding Satan. There he is during his earthly ministry, casting out demons. There he is later on the cross, dealing the death blow to Satan. And what Jesus is saying is that he's binding the strong man and therefore is able to plunder his house, namely to rescue men and women from the clutches of Satan and bring them from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. We find this again expressed in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, where the writer is speaking of Jesus and he says that through death, through Jesus' death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. It's through Jesus' death that he renders the devil powerless. Again, it's the, the, the gladiator who, had almost, who was almost dead giving his opponent the death blow at the last moment. Likewise, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. This is what Jesus' death on the cross accomplished. It was, as Paul says here, God disarming the rulers and authorities and making a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the death of his Son. How glorious is that? That Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, is victorious over all evil. Now certainly, 
we know that this triumph is not yet fully consummated, right? That even now, as you find in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We know from 1 Peter chapter 5 that we are to be on the alert because our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But Christian friend, take heart. Our struggle against Satan, our struggle against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places is a struggle against a defeated foe. To borrow the words of one writer, we are animated, therefore, to the spiritual warfare against these enemies who are already overcome and routed, nay, triumphed over by our captain. For those who are vanquished are always more angry than powerful. Those who are vanquished are more angry than powerful. And that's, that's what we see in, uh, I, think, I think, Revelation 12. Uh, you can read that on your own tonight or some other time. I think we see a little picture of that in Revelation chapter 12. Satan's defeat and him going forth in great wrath, knowing that he has just a little time. He knows, he knows he's been beaten, he knows the game is up, but he's angry, but more angry than powerful. Scripture tells us, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And according to the promise of Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so, in light of all of that, and all of that that we see in those three verses here, Colossians 2.13-15, who in their right mind would want to go anywhere other than to Jesus Christ? Who would want to abandon him in favor of some other philosophy or some other ceremonies? There is no philosophy that will make you alive and forgive all of your sins. There's no philosophy, no ceremony that will cancel out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Only Christ can do that. And the good news of the gospel that I proclaim tonight is not only that Christ can do it, but Christ has done it. And he has done it once for all, for all of his people. And so, Christian, take heart and rejoice in Christ and rejoice on account of what he has done for you. And if you're here tonight and you're outside of Christ, I want you to know that your only hope is to repent and believe in Jesus. Because all of these things that we have looked at, all of these wonderful things, are only things that belong to believers. None of, none of these things belong to you if you are outside of Christ. You do not have the forgiveness of sins. You do not have the, the written code taken away and nailed to the cross for you. If you're outside of Christ, the written code still stands against you. If you are outside of Christ, you're still a part of the kingdom of Satan. You have not been transferred. And though Christ has defeated Satan and made a public display of him, that does you no good if you are outside of Jesus Christ. No eternal good. These good things will only come to you if you turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Please pray with me. Our Father, we are thankful for uh, the great glories of the work of Christ and what he has done for us. And Father, we, we pray that you, would, that you would stir up our hearts, that we would love Christ, that we would serve him with all of our hearts. And Lord, that you would uh, give us a great burden Knowing the glory of this gospel, give us a burden to, uh, to share it with others that they too might be drawn to Christ. 
And we ask your blessing and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.